Hello everyone and welcome to the Healing My Earth, Healing Me podcast, the podcast where we explore different concepts and ideas on how our actions are affecting our environment and how that goes back to our own health and well-being. Today we're with Jake Clapson and he's the founder of Move Wild and he's currently obsessed with asking the question of how we as humans can thrive in the modern world. It's so he spent the last seven years of his life learning about diet, ancestral living practices, rewilding, natural movement, hunting, mythology, and nature connection. So he's communicating all that he has learned from these experiences through coaching and mentoring. And I absolutely love his vision, um, which is to create local community-centric earth-based culture, bringing people together to share skills and grow as a collective. He's currently in the process of setting up a retreat that'll allow for a deeper understanding of what it actually means to be human through the embracing of ancestrally aligned practices. So in his spare time, he's usually running around outdoors, body surfing, climbing trees, learning to hunt, reading and learning the Norse mythology, writing and sharing conversations through his podcast. So yeah, let's get into the episode. Welcome, Jake. Thank you. No worries. And yeah, with these episodes and conversations, I generally like starting with why. So like, why are you motivated to do what you do? Why did you start Move Wild and go into the rewilding and natural movement space? Sure. Well, there's, there's many reasons for why. I think one of the key reasons is gratitude. Um, I think throughout my life, a recurring theme has been shown to me um, that I, this life or my life is a gift and I don't have that much time on this planet in this life. So for me, a lot of the reason why I do what I do is me attempting to make the most of that time and me attempting to do my best to serve others and serve those around me. Sometimes my attempts are not um, successful sometimes they are but for me a lot of the reason of why I do what I do comes back to gratitude and then outside of that I guess my personal journey I see that I I think it's been my experience that the the things that we as humans experience in our life specifically pain allows us a unique perspective on life and it has been my past and my pains in my past that allow me to kind of see the world through a unique lens and kind of try and solve a lot of the problems that I solved for myself and now attempt to solve for other people. So, yeah, those, those two aspects would be the biggest whys for me as to why I do what I do. And we can go into more specifics on that or... But that's, that's kind of a broad answer to that question, I guess. Mm. And I love that you talk about two sides of the coin as well because there's the pain and pleasure motivations in, like, yeah, why we do what we do. And, yeah, yeah. I'm a bit more curious, I guess, with the um, rewilding space. Why have you delved into that in your life? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, my journey has been largely based around health and understanding human health and kind of through trying to solve my own health issues, understanding some universal principles of human health and how they can be applied to most people um, dealing with similar health issues or people that just want to feel vital and vibrant, which is something that 
I see many people missing uh, in the modern world, more and more so, um, a sense of vitality and vibrancy. So rewilding for me is the ultimate cultivator of human health. And I didn't see that until, um, you know, quite late on in my journey, but a lot of the different pieces that I pieced together as I went on through my health journey and through kind of coaching others led me to realize that rewilding really from my perspective now and the concept of rewilding is the ultimate way to both heal humans and also to bring humans and our planet and and all things really into full alignment and into full aliveness and vibrancy and vitality so rewilding for me is really exploring what vibrancy and vitality means and what the actual experience of vibrancy and vitality means actually living that I think maybe it would be good to give people a little bit of a definition of what rewilding is because that term gets thrown around a lot and, you know, people add it to the start of their business names or they add it to these different bits and pieces and a lot of people don't actually use it in its proper context or a lot of people just don't know what it means. Mm. So to understand rewilding and human health in general and just... um, who we are as a species, we have to understand, I believe, where we come from and our past. So I was actually having a conversation with uh, a dude yesterday and he kind of summed it up very, very beautifully and very well, which is that it takes about 50,000 years for our bodies and our minds to adapt to an environment. So just think about that for a minute to give that context as to what our body and our brain and uh, us as an organism what we are actually adapted to, the kind of environment that we are prepared for on a biological level. And that gives us a context as to where human health and vibrancy and vitality is cultivated because we are designed to be fully functioning in that 50,000-year-old environment. But we have been through the progression of civilization and through various mechanisms that have happened over the past arguably 10 to 12,000 years with the agricultural revolution and then the industrial revolution and so on and so forth, we have been taken out of that environment and we have now been placed in an environment that our bodies are not designed for. So you look at a lot of modern diseases and illnesses and people don't even term them as modern. People don't think about our past or don't understand that disease is not normal but we have normalized disease. We've normalized illness in the modern world and illness and disease are becoming things that people get at younger and younger ages. You know, a hundred years ago would not have been normal for, you know, someone in their teens or a child or even in their twenties or thirties to be obese, to be, to have, you know, high blood pressure, to have a lot of the modern um, diseases of civilization as they have been kind of termed at such a young age and we see an increase in these diseases and we see a normalization of these diseases and we accept them. And when you look back through human history, you see that, for example, looking at indigenous populations or these populations that have been kind of preserved in time, that we have a a window or an opportunity to see what life might've been like 50,000 years ago. We see almost no chronic disease, almost no cases of cancer. Cancer is unheard of, almost no illness. Um, a lot, you know, name, you know, you name it, like arthritis, 
um, you know, heart, heart problems, diabetes, whatever it is, you see like no cases of a lot of these diseases that we are starting to normalize in the modern world. So that's, I guess, the health piece of rewilding is understanding that perhaps civilization or just contemplating the, the question like or the thought that perhaps civilization is not the place for humans to thrive and perhaps a state of domestication and sedentism and passivity is not a place where we find vitality or vibrancy, not only in health, but also in mindset. You know, you see a lot of mental illness in the modern world and we blame, or we, we're very short-sighted in the way that we view disease and illness, which is why I brought it up, because we, we look for cures through medicine or through technology without really understanding that suicidal thoughts or depression or anxiety, which are all, you know, diseases in some form, they're not normal. Like human, the human animal is not meant to be experiencing that. Like that is abnormal. So we need to ask why are we experiencing that? And then it becomes pretty obvious when you understand our history as a species, why we're experiencing a lot of these things is because, oh, we're not eating a diet that's actually evolutionary, evolutionarily appropriate and that our bodies are designed to eat. Oh, we're not in a community and surrounded by people that we know and love and trust. We're, like so many of these factors, we're spending most of our time indoors. And when you, when you actually go through so all the factors that we have been divorced from, we have been divorced from nature through modernity, when you understand all of those factors, it's kind of no wonder that a lot of these diseases are, are rife in, in the modern world. So rewilding is understanding that perhaps civilization is not the optimal place for humans to thrive and returning to, or I don't like returning, but embracing this, the idea that perhaps humans living in congruency and in alignment with nature and their own nature is the place where we can thrive. So that doesn't just mean, you know, going out and living with nature. It also means understanding what our nature is. So we are social animals. We are, it's impossible or nearly impossible for us. Well, I would say it is impossible for us to be fully healthy without social interaction. Um, so having a community, um, just understanding all these different elements and starting to integrate them more into our life. And I think a lot of people in the rewilding world talk about this as a generational process. And I agree with them because so much damage has been done through, even if you just look at health, like epigenetically, um, listeners might be familiar with Weston A. Price's book, uh, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. And that kind of uh, shows the effects of modern agricultural diets on the human body. Like uh, we've lost 10% of our brain size over the past 10,000 years due to mainly agricultural diets and also movement deficiencies and, and movement patterns. Um, and we've lost 10% of our bone density over the last 10,000 years. So just understanding, like looking at the world from that view and understanding how we can start to bring back some of those elements that help us to thrive and help us to be vital and help us to be vibrant. That is rewilding. And as I mentioned before, it's a generational process. We, we won't get there over, uh, like I won't get there over my lifetime. It's so that I can set my health up in a way that it, 
benefits my kids and I can set up a community in a way that so that it benefits my kids and we start to move back towards place-based culture or well, that's my vision and view of rewilding is moving back towards that sense of place-based culture I can I can keep going on this um, just yes an interesting concept that was brought up to me the other day was the the idea just for people to think about rewilding and and this kind of concept someone you know said it's it's kind of illegal to be a human in the modern world um we live in a cage where we have to like it's a it's kind of a it's like a matrix we don't actually see that it's there but it's there um like we it would be so like i would be a very socially inept person if i didn't use ai or technology in the modern world like i'm pretty much it's not illegal but i am socially pressured to use ai and technology um, because if I didn't have a cell phone and I didn't have a computer, how can I communicate with people? And then you look at that and people would say, oh, cell phones and computers are great because they allow us to communicate with people. But yeah, but that's a, a compensation mechanism for the fact that we don't have place-based community and culture anymore. It's a compensation mechanism for the fact that I can't walk down the street and know all my neighbours um, because we live in such a society of individuals. So really understanding that concept of... of the illeg illegality of, of humanity in the modern world is, is super fascinating to me because it's like you can't just walk out on land and forage food and hunt and do these things that are so human that we've been doing for all of our history up until the last you know few hundred years few thousand years depending on where you're from in the world um you know i can't yeah i can't walk out onto land and hunt that would be illegal yet i can you know, do, I can use technology which rapes the land, like literally my cell phone or my computer, the, the amount of resources that goes into creating just things like that, that I use on an everyday basis, harms the land to an incomprehensible extent. But I, I can't do something that is so uniquely human that I, that my ancestors have been practicing for hundreds of thousands of years. So that's, yeah, I guess that sums up for me what rewilding is. I hope that wasn't too broad. No, no. Thank you so much for, um, yeah, explaining your perspective on that and clearing that up and yeah, sharing a bit of insight as to like what you've learned as well in terms of rewilding. And like, I think we were talking about it the other day as well. It's kind of like where like technology and society has evolved so quickly in such a short amount of time, looking back, like really looking back at history, we haven't really been here that long. Well, society that as we see it now hasn't really been here for that long compared to us as humans. And like, I remember you talking about like where, yeah, biological mismatched like within the modern world yeah. and how people are kind of blind to that. Can you talk a bit more about yeah. that? Yeah, totally. So that, that goes back to that, that concept of 50,000, the 50,000 year old body or brain is, is our biology is wired for a certain environment. And look at the um, introduction of AI into our lives. That's only within the last, you know, 20, 10, 20 years, like, or even within the last, yeah, 10 years, when you look at it on a mass scale, like across the world, and that's ever increasing. Um, so our, our biology isn't used to dealing with a lot of these technologies, a lot of these things that are coming to our lives 
and those things are potentially harming us. So what I mean by a biological mismatch is that, yeah, like as I touched on before, is like our brain, our body is is designed for, has evolved in an environment very different from the one that we live in today. Um, we weren't designed to be sitting in one position indoors with um, toxic chemicals in the paint surrounding like our house. Like we weren't even designed to be living in one space necessarily for the whole year. When you look at most hunter-gatherer societies, they're all nomadic. We weren't designed to be consuming the same foods. Like the average Australian, for example, the average American consumes about 30 species per year. Um, and you look at most hunter-gatherer groups, I think the average or at the low end is like 120 species throughout the year. So, you know, like just looking at that kind of diversity and that mismatch in terms of food and you could go on sleep is another great one. Um, so we're, you know, we're designed, we are designed to require a certain amount of sleep, but not only a certain amount or duration of sleep, but a quality of sleep. So if we are exposing ourselves to blue light, for example, that mimics the same um, rays as sunlight, that introduces our, our, that when our body is introduced to that blue light, we, we think that it's daytime because the blue light, which comes mainly from, you know, indoor lighting or, phone screens or technology is is very similar on a spectrum compared to that of daylight. So when our body is exposed to that late at night, for example, we start to suppress melatonin and we um, trigger the release of serotonin, which is terrible if we want to go into deep sleep mm. um, and actually heal ourselves. And you look at the effects on the brain when we don't get enough proper deep sleep, even if you're sleeping eight hours a night, but you're getting terrible quality sleep that's directly linked to Alzheimer's dementia, so many neurodegenerative diseases because your brain isn't getting the proper um, detoxification process that it goes through during those deep sleep cycles. I mean, the list goes on, on, on how we are biologically mismatched. Like community is another one. Um, we're not meant to really have to deal with, this is one that I think about a lot, strangers, like straight, like, Meeting strangers on a daily basis is a very new thing evolutionarily. Um, we, we wouldn't have gone for a walk and met like 20 different people, you know, out in the forest hunting because that like, it's just our brain is not really designed to have all these shallow relationships with so many different people and to be able to process them. We are used to very deep lifelong relationships that are developed over time in a community based setting um, so, you know, that's another biological mismatch. We don't have deep relationships. We don't have lifelong relationships. Often most relationships that we experience in life are, you know, a few years or, you know, a decade if we're lucky and outside of family, of course. Um, but you look at what is biologically appropriate. It's like anywhere between 50 to 150 people that are lifelong relationships, um, which I don't know anybody who's even close to being able to develop those kind of relationships. I know people who know 150 people or more through social media, but there's no depth to most of the relationships that we have. Many of the relationships we have are shallow. And then that comes like, and then further people have lost the ability to communicate and con and have proper conversations and actually relate to each other because 
so much communication is now done through screens or texting or and we lose the ability to read body language we lose the ability to read tone we lose the ability to yeah like i see a lot of people that can't hold a conversation or are extremely socially awkward when it comes to face-to-face -face interaction but are completely adept at texting someone um <laughs> so there's yeah there's many there's many mismatches the list goes on but i think i think people get the point with that <laughs> which is quite funny because we're recording this podcast through zoom <laughs> through screens yeah, yeah, but, totally mm. Yeah, and, I guess. and well, we could touch on that, which is why do people need to listen to podcasts through recording is because we've lost the ability to be around other people who can hold deep conversations. Most of the conversations you have in everyday life are like so shallow uh, because you don't know the person well enough to be able to have a deep conversation. So this, you know, people would say, oh, technology is great because we can listen to podcasts and listen to all these different conversations that influence us. But look at that. That's the compensation mechanism for the fact that we don't, actually have a community to have those kind of conversations with and a lot of people don't know how to think for themselves that's another one it's like we have outsourced our ability to think for ourselves to google or to these storage systems of information and technology it's like polynesians like knew the like entire milky way off by heart and how to navigate through it for days on the open ocean um, in order to get from one island to another, they couldn't even see when they took off. It's like that's the amount of memory capacity that the human brain has. But we have outsourced that and lost that, and st we start to atrophy when we stop. You know, you you lose what you don't use. So we start to our brain starts to atrophy when we start to outsource to a lot of these technologies. Um, Movement-wise, we start to atrophy when we stop needing to move. Our body starts getting weaker, and that's where you see the loss in bone density. Um, and yeah, just there's so many, so many interesting points on, on how we have atrophied the more that we are, we, the more dependence we have on a system that is inevitably unsustainable and that we will have to, whether that's in our lifetime or, time or another lifetime, we will have to break from, will we be so atrophied to the point where we can't actually survive without the dependence of that on that system like that's a that's a big question that i've kind of been focusing on and personally preparing myself so that i i am not at the mercy of the separation from that dependence mm, like with my line of work i've worked so closely with technology so totally on the other side of the spectrum but also in my personal life, I guess, just finding the balance of not having to rely on technology all the time. And I guess like part of me also sees technology as freeing us up from all these repeatable tasks to see whether like, what are we actually capable of as humans? If we remove all these tasks that are just easily yeah. repeatable. My, my, my question to that is why are those tasks, like what, what are the repeatable tasks and why are we trying to escape human experience? Like what is the end game? What is the end goal? Like what do we get to when we don't have to do anything anymore? Like, like what are we just dancing around and playing music and celebrating life at the expense of destroying our planet in order to facilitate the production of those technologies? It's like it's, and then what are those repeatable tasks that we're doing? Why are we doing them in the first place? Why, why are people working in a factory? Why are people, you know, typing on a computer? 
to, to make money to provide for food. Well, if they knew how to hunt and that if they knew, if they had knowledge of the land and if they lived in community, they wouldn't have to make money to bring in food and they wouldn't have to make money to buy a shelter that was built for them in a, a, a way that's unsustainable. So it's, 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 it's a broad concept and a, and a broad question. And going back to the sustainability piece is that that is inevitably unsustainable. So even if we do get to a point where that technology is able to kind of take over from us doing the menial tasks, that is not sustainable generationally. So are we setting ourselves up for this death by atrophy and death by like gener down the line, whether it's in our lifetime or generally like further down the generations, are we setting ourselves up for a point where our kids are so weak and dependent on the system that they can't do anything outside of relying on their phone to tell them where the nearest shops are or relying on their car to get them to the nearest shops? Like what if your car breaks down? Oh, do you have like, are you strong enough to walk that far? Like, for me, it comes down to just asking questions of myself, like, what if my car broke down? Could I fix my car? Am I able to actually fix this piece of technology that I use, like, every day? I drive my car every day. Most people have no idea how a car operates or works. Um, most people don't know how the electricity works in their house. Um, most people don't know how to build a building. Like, they don't know how to set up, like, the thing that they live in, they don't know, like, how weird is that evolutionarily? The clothes that we wear. No, I didn't make these clothes. You didn't make the clothes that you're wearing. We don't know how to make clothes. So all of a sudden, what if we, the system that allows us to wear these clothes that we don't make, what if that collapses and we have to make our own clothes? Can we do that? Like just asking those kind of questions, it doesn't, I, I'm not necessarily for removing ourselves from the system. I'm saying we shouldn't be dependent on the system should it collapse. Like I, I don't want to be in a position where I can't build a shelter. I can't feed myself if there's no more food at the shops. Like all of our shops, I was talking to someone the other day, like, you know, Coles and Woolies, they have like probably a week's worth supply of food if they don't restock. So it's like, what happens when that week's worth supply of food? Can you supply, like, can you get your own food? Well, if the answer is no, then you're dependent on a system. Um, and it's not that we're, as humans designed not to be dependent on a system is that we are designed to be dependent on systems that we have autonomy over and control over right now, the systems in our life, we have no say over, like I have no idea how Woolies and Coles um, stock their shelves and where the food comes from. Any of that. I have no idea of those systems in past times. We had an idea of where our food come from, came from, or we obtained it ourselves. Um, so I do, uh, worry about the atrophy of us as a human species due to our dependence on these things that we don't know about, like, so, you know, cell phones and computers are another great example. I don't know how to make them. Um, not many people do <laughs> like, so I'm, but I'm dependent on that for my social, um, for mo a lot of my social interaction, sadly, um, and I wish I wasn't, and I'm moving towards a place where I won't need to be. But I th yeah, I think it comes from a place of asking, am I dependent on a system? Do I know anything about that system? Because the next step is, even if you are dependent on a system, at least know something about it. If you're dependent on your car, know something about a car, know how to fix the tire if the tire goes flat, like know, 
how to, or, and you're dependent on your body. Most people don't know about their bodies, but really our body is the only thing that we ever truly own. And we are dependent on that when shit hits the fan and when we have nothing else to rely upon. Like if we have to all of a sudden walk eight kilometers to the nearest petrol station because our car broke down, we are dependent on our body in that situation. And if you can't walk eight kilometers, if you're not fit enough to walk eight kilometers, you are fucked. <laughs> like, or, but, or just putting yourself in those positions and understanding that playing mental games, really asking what if, and when it comes down to it, this is why I'm big on movement. Our body is the last thing that we have. And it is the thing that we can rely upon the most, our mind and our body, because I don't understand a car that well. I understand it enough to feel safe in driving one. But if that car breaks down, I'll have to rely on my body. If I can't live in a house anymore or like, or I can't, I don't have access to clothes or I don't have access to shelter, I should say, I'm reliant on my ability to, um, to be not affected by cold or heat or these external exposures of that nature will have and I will have to adapt to. So I'll have to rely on my body in that sense. I'll have to rely on my body in, in so many ways when it comes down to it. So that's why one of the reasons as a bridge, uh, like why I'm so big on movement is because physical capability and physical skill and developing that in ourselves, that's something that is, is very hard to lose when it comes down to it. We can lose a lot of other things. I can lose tools. I can lose, um, you know, my phone, I can lose my home, but I'll, I'll never lose my body. And if I haven't spent the time to develop my physical capability and my body, then I have done myself a disservice because I'm not surviving in this world without some sort of mental and physical capacity. Um, and that, you know, that's expressed in so many different ways, whether that's if someone knows how to defend themselves, which is such a basic thing. Most people have no clue, no clue how to defend themselves, no clue how to defend their own bodies against harm. Um, because we have this luxury of living in such a safe society and a world that didn't like, this is, this is an anomaly in human history. The the level of violence that we are exposed to or the, the danger even of violence or the threat of violence that we're exposed to in Australia and especially in Australia, it's a luxury and people don't necessarily understand that most of the world, there is a high threat that you could be like there could be physical violence enacted towards you and you will have to be able to defend yourself. Um, so that's just an example of depending upon our physical capability. <laughs> I love it. And yeah, I love how passionate you get about this. Um, yeah. Talking about this is obviously a massive part of your life. And yeah, I think yeah. movement's like, one area where we started like getting in touch with each other. And so I love, I love it when you touched upon like place-based communities and how like being a bit more integrated in that part of your life. And so I like growing up in the Philippines, I was fortunate enough to um, go to the provinces and live in the mountains with different communities and 
it was just awesome seeing every like different parts of the community have their own roles that contribute within that community and bring it back to that community. And I know you've spent a bit of time in Arnhemland as well, if you're happy to share some of the lessons yeah. that you've taken from those trips. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so place-based culture and community is so important and it, it comes back to one of those things that it's, it's a biological necessity for us to be fully vibrant and thriving and healthy. Uh, and a lot of people don't have that. And what does, what does place-based culture mean? It's, it's a deep connection with the place that you live um, and having a community and culture that's integrated into that place that you live. A lot of people, uh, just yeah, to preface it with this, a lot of people see themselves as separate to nature. A lot of people see themselves as a, as a disintegrated part of nature. It's like humans and nature. And whenever conservationists or people who are pro-environmental, who actually live in cities and have no idea as to how nature works most of the time, they, they describe nature as having no humans in it like it's just this thing it's like humans live here and nature is here and they, mm. they have no interaction it's like well when we see these indigenous cultures it's like no they are very much part of the environment not only that but the environment relies upon them for that for it to be fully healthy the environment is not healthy without humans there now that's a kind of a mind fuck for a lot of people coming from modern um modern uh a modern lens because most people associate humans with destruction. But that's, the, that's a very modern and new narrative. Humans have been an essential part to many of the world's environments throughout most of human history. And humans being a destructive force is very much a story that we've placed upon ourselves and have created um, within the last few thousand years. So my experiences in Arnhem Land showed me that it was possible for a community to, or a, a group of people, it gave me the visceral experience, I should say, say, that because those people have been living there for, you know, around 60,000 years. Um, <laughs> that's, you know, kind of incomprehensible when you think about how many generations that is where people have been living in relation to and in service of and in an integrated way with nature. You know, we look at the modern world and it's like a hundred years of humans living in a place and they've fucked it up already. But 60,000 years of um, these, these people living on this, this piece of land, this place, and being so knowledgeable of the animals and the plants and the cycles and the rhythms and the seasons of that place, that they are so um, integrated into that place. And that sense of integration and connection to place is really what has inspired a lot of um, what I do today and what I continue to do is bringing that back into this world is a sense of connection. Not only you know, do they have that sense of connection to nature and place, they also have you know, a sense of connection to community and relating to each other, which is the community aspect of earth-based culture and community. So they are all extremely connected throughout Arnhem Land to their family, to who their kin are, and they treat them with reverence and respect. And there is a system for relating 
to all the people throughout Arnhem Land. And that is, that's, uh, you know, that's not just native to Arnhem Land, that's across most hunter-gatherer societies when we see anthropological records is this deep sense of community and relating. Um, not only that, but they also have a strong, 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 strong sense of where they came from and who they are as a people, which is a big piece that we have lost um, in the modern world. We are in many ways cultureless. I think John Young possibly, don't quote me on this, he describes us as an anti-culture. We're like the opposite of culture. We have the opposite of culture in the modern world. We have this weird mismatch of people that don't speak their original languages like I don't speak like my ancestors come from northern Europe I have no idea how to speak Danish or any language relating to any Scandinavian language um, uh, like these people have a strong lineage and a strong understanding of what their culture is Australian culture is not a culture like it's this weird new kind of it's the thing like you, you can't it's not it's not definable they have a very definable they have storylines they have mythology they have they have stories based around where they come from and who they are as a culture and they have a sense of tribe and community and identity within that that comparing that to the modern world again we have lost we don't have any sense of like I, we identify with shallow very shallow things we identify with who we work for or uh, what we do, like our job, um, and a little bit with our family and with our friends and what brands we buy and all these different weird, shallow attachments to relationships that we've only had for a few years or those people have had those relationships linear, like from a lineage standpoint and from a cultural standpoint for 60,000 years. Like that's insane. Like their culture and their storylines span back throughout the generations and all their yeah like what i'm getting at is they have a sense of themselves they have a sense of who they are and how they interact with the land because that has been passed down through story through lineage from the elders to the next generation how are we supposed to live in order for us to be able to be healthy in order for the land to be healthy we don't have those stories we don't have those um those myths that are passed down through the generations. We did, we completely disrespect elders and in many ways, rightly so because elders have no idea what they're doing in the modern world as well, because everything's changing so fast. Um, so we don't have a context as to how to interact with the world because we don't have that story and we don't have those stories passed down to us. And in many ways I see from that kind of an elitism and this, um, how do I put it, the superiority or sense of superiority that many people have coming into the world as to like, this is how you do things or our way is the right way or with a complete lack of understanding or context as to what the world is or, or you know, what nature is or how nature works. Um, you know, you see this a lot within the ecological communities. You see this a lot within vegan communities is this rising above nature is this i'm better than nature i like veganism is a great example like death is non-existent to me i'm just going to ignore death death is not a part of nature um because i'm above nature and i'll be a leader to it. and I, I know that not all vegans are like that 
but that is a classic kind of mindset that many people have is this idea that we as humans are above nature and we know better than nature and we know better than the natural eco, um, the natural systems and cycles and that we can manipulate them or so many manifestations of that idea come up in the modern world of we are better than nature and you don't see that in our land. They don't, they don't think they're better than nature. They don't think that they're better than the animals. They don't think that they're better than, yeah, they don't think that they're better than a place. They are a part of that place. They are one of the animals on the landscape. They are not the animal and every other animal is subservient to them. They are simply an integrated being within that ecosystem. Um, so yeah, that, that respect for that, the land, that sense of integration with that land, that sense of lineage and that sense of community is what kind of sums up place-based culture for me in, in, many, in many ways. And that's what I'm trying to create as well is or re, reawaken that sense. And as I mentioned earlier, it's a generational process. It's not, you know, I, I can't just snap my fingers and say, all right, we have a place-based, earth-based culture because, uh, you know, my family, my parents, uh, you know, both are, are immigrants to this country. So th- immediately that's not a place-based culture because they they're very new to the land. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm new to the land and I'm still getting to know the land but I am developing a sense of connection to the land that hopefully I can pass on to my kids and my kids will develop a deeper sense of connection to what this place is. Um, and re- yeah, and really honoring the ecological uniqueness of your area is a really important point that I also wanted to touch on is that people talk about nature as if it's this um, broad thing that, is kind of everywhere outside of a city, but each environment and each ecological area is very different and very specific. Like the, the kind of foods that indigenous Australians ate and survived off out in the bush are very different to the kind of foods that native Americans used. And the knowledge of their um, respective lands was extremely important to them being able to live and survive on those lands. Like you couldn't have a native American knowing all the, um, all the food species of Australia. They had to know the food species of their land in order to survive on that land. So looking at nature not as some broad, like nature is everywhere, nature is just a forest or nature is just a mountain or nature is just a, you know, whatever, a river. It's like, what, what's your nature? What's the nature surrounding you? Do you know it? Do you know the species of trees that are there? Do you know the food, you know, the plant foods that are in that area? Do you know the animals that are in that area that you can hunt? Um, do, you know, do you know that land deeply and intimately? Um, so, that, yeah, that's just another point that I wanted to touch on. And the people in Arnhem Land, they do. They know their land so well they know all the species they have they have stories for all the species they have dream time stories for all the species um within that area and the you know not just animals but also plants and yeah it's just it's really interesting kind of paradigm shift that that experience provided me as a new way of looking at the world Mm. and yeah the fact that yeah you mentioned a lot of people talk about nature as if it's something so separate and not actually experience nature and be a part of nature and integrate that within their own lives. And so with all this, like what's, 
and a lot of these concepts can be quite overwhelming for people that are just hearing about this for the first time. And so what's one thing that people can take away and take action on to yeah, be kinder to our earth and subsequently their own health as well that aligns with a lot of these practices? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is shift your mindset. If you don't shift your mindset, then you, you won't shift your behavior long-term. So the world and nature and humans are one and the same. Uh, that would be one of the key takeaways that I would give to people is that we are not separate from nature as humans. All what, when we do harm to something outside of us, we do harm to ourselves. Um, and that might not be a, a, you know, an immediate experience, but when we do harm to nature, we do harm to ourselves. So that's, that's the mental aspect is, is changing our worldview and seeing that humans are in connection to and relationship with and a part of the natural world. The practical thing that perhaps I will offer is start not only to be outdoors in nature and observing, but start interacting. So start moving around your environment. A lot of, you know, my background is based a lot around movement, especially natural movement and moving out in nature. So don't just, you know, sit there. Don't just look at the birds. That's great. But actually, you know, climb a tree or go for a walk, be out in nature and interact with the landscape. The landscape wants your interaction. We have been taught for so long that, you know, stay on the path, don't go off track, don't interact with nature whatsoever because as soon as humans touch nature, everything goes to shit. Um, we've been told that story. So start to rewire that and um, start interacting, whether that's going for a walk, climbing a tree, or learning about a species in your environment that you can perhaps harvest, whether that's a plant or an animal, um, and start really forming that connection with the natural world through interaction rather than just observation. I love that. Thank you so much, Shake. That's yeah, yeah, really insightful. And I really enjoyed hearing a lot of your perspectives and yeah, a lot of the insights that you yeah, shared with us as well. It's um, yeah, really cool no worries. It was yeah. a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for taking the time to listen to another episode of Healing My Earth, Healing Me. I'd love to hear from you, so feel free to connect with me on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And I'm excited to catch you at the next episode.